One of the nice things about preaching at Redeemer is that the preacher has four passages to choose from, but sometimes four is just not enough. So today, with the blessing of Mother Amanda, I'm preaching from two passages that aren't in the liturgical calendar for today. But these two passages help to set the stage for this season of Advent. So it makes sense to look at them on the first Sunday of Advent. And today marks the beginning of the liturgical year. The name Advent, I love this because I get to bring in the other languages. The name Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And the Latin translates the Greek, which is parousia, which is also used in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' second coming. So our New New Testament passages this morning will help us see that this season of Advent is really focused not only on Jesus' first Advent, his birth, but also on his second one. And we're going to come back to that at the very end. Now, I realize that I'm kind of jumping to the end of the story by focusing on Jesus' birth today. But as I said, I want to give us a framework for contemplating the entire season of Advent. And it's my prayer that our focus today will enable us to experience the season of Advent with wonder and renewed hope. But for now, I'd like for you to think for a moment about complete darkness. Perhaps there was a time when you were cut off from all sources of light. For me, I experienced this when I was doing black and white photography in college. Now, I know that some of you have no idea that anything other than a camera, a phone, excuse me, a phone can take pictures. But long ago in a distant galaxy, there was something called a camera that actually used film. And in non-digital 35 millimeter film photography, you have to go into a small dark room to get the film out of the canister and to wind it around a reel so that you can submerge it into various chemical baths. So I remember the first time that I went into a dark room. Even though I knew that it would be completely dark, I kept my eyes open the whole time, straining against the darkness for some glimmer of light a glimmer of light that would have ruined my film. After several years of developing film, as much as I tried, I could never go into a dark room without straining to see some glimmer of light. A few years after this, I read an article that said that the human eye cannot fully adjust to darkness. And I can confirm that this is true. Now, I actually think that this simple fact that the human eye cannot adjust to total darkness parallels a much more profound truth. I believe that human beings plunged into the total darkness of despair and lostness are somehow straining in the darkness for some glimmer of light. Now, we know from Scripture that God's response to this darkness is to shine forth his light, the light that cannot be overcome by darkness. So during this season, we ponder the advent of this glorious light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And today we're going to consider what it means to live in the light of that advent. 
So we're going to begin by looking at the first advent, but we're going to see that this anticipates an even more glorious advent. But before we look at the passage from Luke, let's consider just how dark it was prior to the birth of Christ. For the people of God, this was a very dark time. For nearly 400 years, the prophetic voice had not been heard. Judea, the promised land, was occupied by Rome. And despite the Pax Romana, the great peace of the Roman Empire, these were violent, tumultuous times. Many longed for a political messiah that would lead the revolt against Rome. Some hoped for a cataclysmic end to the present world order to usher in the age to come. And it's here, in this very place, at this very point in time, in a completely unexpected way, that God was about to shine his light into the darkness. Just as God spoke into the dark void prior to creation, so he also spoke into the world's broken, despairing spiritual darkness prior to his son's incarnation. And just as the spirit hovered over the surface of the formless void prior to creation, bringing forth life where there was none, so also the spirit hovered over a young girl, 13 or 14 years old, bringing forth the life that would be the light of the world. So let's look at this passage from Luke. The first few verses are filled with contrast and irony. First, there's the contrast between the earthly pomp of Caesar and the heavenly glory of God. Augustus was born Gaius Octavius, but he became Caesar, which means holy or revered, by decree of the Roman Senate. Previously, this title Augustus had been reserved only for gods, but archeological evidence shows that Augustus and later emperors were hailed as the savior of the world. But no Caesar, including this great Augustus, were truly God, let alone the savior of the world. So Luke deliberately situates the miraculous birth of Jesus right in the middle of world history to show the cosmic significance of this birth, the birth of the true savior of the world. In addition to, between, to the contrast between the earthly pomp and the heavenly glory, there's the contrast between human decrees and divine providence. Now there's some debate over the type and the timing of the census that's mentioned in this passage. But what's clear, however, is the ironic contrast between the decree of the most powerful ruler in the known world and the providential plan of the one who rules the universe. The powerful Augustus was actually the means by which the living God chose to bring his beloved son into a tiny town called Bethlehem, the place that had been appointed for his birth. Bethlehem, 
the place where David had been born a thousand years previously. It is now the birthplace of the son of David, the one who will reign on God's throne forever. Now let's look at the end of this passage where Luke recounts the actual birth of Christ. We're not exactly told why Mary accompanied Joseph to Bethlehem. Some have suggested it was for her protection to take her away from the gossiping whispers of a conservative Jewish small town. Perhaps Joseph simply wanted to make sure that he was with Mary when the time came for her to give birth. Still, the decision to take Mary to Bethlehem could not have been made lightly. Unless they were fortunate enough to get a pack animal, it's most likely that Joseph and Mary made the 85-mile trip on foot. Imagine how grueling this would have been toward the end of a pregnancy. It's surprising how briefly Luke records the actual birth, yet there's a beauty to the simplicity of the narrative. The matter-of-factness of this account highlights the historical reality of this miraculous birth. And there's profound poignancy to the lowly circumstances in which it occurred. We're not given precise details about the scene of our Savior's birth, but it was no doubt quite different than all the ways that we have imagined it, particularly in this upcoming season of Advent. When I was growing up, we had a beautiful little crutch. It was very simple, and it had thoughtful figures with beautifully painted faces. There was a stable for the cattle. There was a shepherd boy with three sheep. The roof was made with real straw. I loved this crutch. But even as simple as it was, it's not how the real nativity scene was. No crush made could ever possibly capture the beauty of the Lord of glory, the King of kings, and the Savior of the world being born in utter poverty. Indeed, Luke tells us that this was not a suitable place for Mary to give birth. And although we're not giving details, it's clear that Jesus was not born in an ideal place to be born. But this is where our Savior was born, surrounded by straw and dirt. The fact that Mary traveled to Bethlehem meant that she had her baby far away from family, from her mother, any aunts or female cousins who could have assisted her in the birth. Having just given birth, Luke tells us that Mary wrapped the tiny baby in long strips of cloth that would keep his fragile, still developing bones protected, bones that would not be broken on the cross, but tiny bones that needed to be cradled and supported in infancy. And once wrapped, Jesus was not placed into a carefully prepared crib with brand new fleece sheets, but he was gently and lovingly placed in a manger or a feeding trough for animals. Consider the startling irony of this passage. The most glorious event in human history takes place not in a palace, but in poverty. This is the Messiah. This is his city. And yet he chose to enter it in a manger. And notice his parents. These are not the ones who made decrees 
but those who followed them. Joseph was not an exalted emperor, but a simple carpenter. Mary was not a grand queen, but a poor teenage girl. And what about the birth? The inexpressible wonder of eternal glory compressed into human flesh. The power through which the world was created, willing to endure the painful process of birth. This is the true light that comes into the midst of human darkness. God himself in the flesh, descending into human neediness and poverty. And if we were to continue in Luke's account, we would read of the passage of the angels appearing to the shepherds, the light of God's glory again piercing the darkness. Just as God revealed his marvelous plan of redemption to a teenage girl, so also he revealed the cosmic significance of this miraculous birth to a group of shepherds. Not famous people, but nameless individuals on the edge of town. This is remarkable. God's good news of redemption doesn't come to the most important, humanly speaking, but to the humble, not to the self-sufficient, but to the needy. Luke 2.11 is a wonderful summary of this entire gospel. It's not in our reading, so I'll read it now. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. There are three titles given to Jesus in this verse. It's like a little mini theology course. First, we have Lord. This is the one who has sovereign authority over all of creation. This is the one before whom every knee will bow and one um, whose name every tongue will confess. Uh, sorry, I should have said, first we have Savior. <laughs> this is the Old Testament idea of a Redeemer, which we kind of know about in this church. Um, and then we have Christ, which is Messiah. This is the Lord's anointed one who fulfills all of God's promises. And then we have Lord. So when I read these three titles in Luke 2.11, I can't help but think of that line from O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This one birth brought forth praise in heaven and effected peace on earth, the true peace of God. This peace stands in direct contrast to the Pax Romana because the Roman peace was brought about with bloodshed and slavery. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus said this about Rome's peace. While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he cannot give peace of heart. But the true prince of peace brings the peace by which humans are reconciled to God and to each other. This peace is shalom, the fullness of life as God intended it to be. This is God's response to our lost human condition. He sent his beloved son, the light of the world, into the darkness of sin and evil. This is the message of Advent, and living in the light of Advent means worshiping the one who willingly came on our behalf. But at the same time, 
This wonderful account of our Lord's birth points to a future advent yet to come. At his first advent, Jesus came for our redemption, for salvation from sin. But he will come the second time for our deliverance, the final defeat of all evil. So living in the light of Advent means not only praising Jesus for his birth, but also living in the light of Advent means living in the hope of his second coming. How can we truly understand this marvelous story of his birth when we still see such evil all around us? For although the light of the world has come, we are not fully free from the darkness. So living in the light of Advent means living with one eye focused on what he has done and one eye focused on what he will do. This means living in the light of that final time when all will be made right and we will experience a world without evil. In our very depths of our being, this is what we truly long for. So now let's spend a little bit of time considering the second advent, which brings us to our passage from Revelation 21. What a glorious scene. Here is the advent of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the very presence of God himself. In verses one and two, we see the new creation, that the old creation is transformed. The old heaven and old earth pass away into one glorious new creation that can finally reflect the glory of God. Here we see the merging of heaven and earth, the coming together of this present age and the age to come. This is the glorious redemption of creation. This is where evil and death, which are symbolized by the sea in verse one, are no more. At long last, the new Jerusalem, the city prepared by God for his people, finally descends. This is the Jerusalem above, whose architect is God. Notice that this city is likened to a bride. Like a bride in beautiful wedding clothes, this city is adorned in splendor beyond comprehension. This is almost unbelievable. The city is both the people of God and the place where God dwells with his people. Verse 3 invites us to reflect over the entire sweep of Scripture, to think back on God's promise to dwell with his people and to make them his people. This is what he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he covenanted with Moses and with the people, what he affirmed in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And this verse, verse 3, invites us to reflect on the Incarnation, where John uses the very same language of God dwelling with his people, Christ, Emmanuel, with us. When the word became flesh in the first advent, John says that we saw God's glory. But here in Revelation 21 in the second advent, we see the fullness of God's glory, God truly and forever dwelling with us. This is the perfect communion that was broken by Adam and Eve. This is the full experience of God that our hearts hunger for, and we experience now only in part. But then, in the final advent, we will perfectly enjoy all of God's promises. We will walk fully with him, and he will dwell with us. And not only will we perfectly dwell with him, 
we will perfectly dwell with each other. We will join with the great multitude to worship him forever. What we know and experience now in part, we will then experience fully. As if this weren't enough, at that time, he will wipe away every tear and every source of sorrow will be gone. This is amazing. Right now, right here in this room, there are sorrows of every kind present. There are sorrows from the evil, the incredible evil that we see in our world. There are sorrows from the harsh words of others spoken to us, or maybe that we've spoken to others. There are sorrows from our struggles with sin and temptation. There are sorrows from loved ones whom we've lost to death or who continue to reject Christ. In this very room right here, and for those who are joining us online, there are many sorrows and there are many tears. In each one of us, there is a profound longing for the time when the deep wounds within us are healed, when there is no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Like creation that groans around us, around us, we too groan for the complete redemption of our bodies, of our very souls. This is the place where the best of literature, art, and music can only approximate. This is the place where the very fabric of our being cries out for. And this glorious future seems almost too wonderful for belief. Yet verses 5 and 6 record the very words of God himself, that this vision is indeed true. Here is the promise that speaks hope into our hearts. I am making everything new. Notice also that in this short sentence in verse 6, it is done. This assures us that God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, you may be thinking about a very similar declaration that Jesus made on the cross, which is recorded in John 19.30. Jesus proclaims, it is finished. That declaration assures us that the work of the cross is complete. But the declaration here in Revelation 21, it is done, assures us that everything that needs to happen to bring about God's <coughs> glorious plan will take place we will fully dwell with God in glory. This promise is sealed by the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The God who began human history is the one who will complete it. He is fully in control both then and now. He will accomplish what he has promised. Now this passage comes to a close with the encouraging promise of verse six. To the one who was thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Only the one who paid the price to the utmost can give this living water freely. This is the assurance that our deepest longings to be with God will indeed be met. Now, this glorious picture of the future is actually meant for us here and now. This vision encourages us to persevere and to not lose hope. It encourages us to remain faithful and to walk with the one who has called us. Living in the light of Advent, Advent means living in the certainty of this future. 
We began our time by considering what it means to live in the light of this uh, glorious Advent. And we saw from Luke 2 that living in the light of Advent means praising him for his willing incarnation on our behalf. From Revelation 21, we saw that living in the light of Advent means longing for his final glorious coming. Now, praising him and longing for his return are integrally woven together. So during this season of Advent, it is my prayer that as we praise him for his birth, we will also deepen our longing for his return. And we can begin by filling our imaginations with the scenes that are presented in Revelation 21 and 22. We live in such a visually oriented society that it's easy to let our imaginations become lazy. We're bombarded with images all around us. Sometimes we can almost forget what it means to set our mind on the things above and to use every part of our imagination, a God-given faculty, to ponder the glory of God. But we need to fill our minds with these powerful images from Scripture to help us focus on the reality of God and the certainty of the future that he's prepared for us. We need to consistently put our focus on what is true, what exists for us in heaven, our imperishable inheritance. And while it's true that we can never fully imagine this, like I always like to say, this is the book that you can read where the movie will only be better. Even though we can never fully imagine this, our very being, our neural pathways, are shaped and transformed when we try to consider and imagine what this will be like. So we can deepen our longing for him by imagining our glorious future with him. But we can also cultivate our longing for him by setting all of our present dreams and our present desires, as well as our disappointments, against the backdrop of his certain return. For what seems so important right now gains its true significance in the light of our final destination. The desperate grasping after and the frantic busyness, particularly of this season, needs to be seen in the light of our future glory. Every longing that we have can only be met in him. So we need to let the certainty of his return, his second advent, shape our dreams, desires, and disappointments right now. I'm reminded of stories, uh, maybe these are apocryphal stories, I don't know, of believers throughout the century who set an extra place at their table in anticipation of Jesus' return. I love that image. It's so easy to lose this sense of anticipation in the busyness of our lives. My prayer is that during the season of Advent, we'll make a discipline, maybe mental or real, of setting an extra place at the table in anticipation of the certain return of Jesus. As we long for his return, we naturally praise him. So living in the light of Advent means praising him for his first Advent, and living in the light of Advent means longing for his second coming. And I just want to invite us to be filled again with the wonder of Advent. I know it's easy when we've already been hearing Christmas carols for a month <laughs> or two um, to lose sight of this. And so my prayer really is that during the season of Advent, we would allow the focus on Jesus' first Advent and the focus on his second Advent to really fill us again with a sense of wonder, a sense of wonder that Jesus was willing to do this, to be born, 
and that he is certainly coming back. When we do this, we will truly and certainly in our hearts be able to join together and uh, join with the great multitude who sing and praise in Revelation 5, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your deep mercy. We thank you for not leaving us in the darkness of our lives, but for sending your Son. By your Spirit, we pray that you would fill our minds with the images of your glory and a deepening hunger for your ways. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming back, and we pray to live in breathless anticipation of this glorious event. In your perfect and holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.